Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers of all genres incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is acclaimed bestseller Ian Rankin. After graduating from the University of Edinburgh, Ian began writing novels while studying Scottish literature. His first published work, The Flood, appeared on shelves in 1986, and he's since launched a number of novels uh, to incredible reader and critical acclaim. His works include fiction novels, some of which are published under a pen name, Jack Harvey, a nonfiction called Rebus's Scotland, and a singer, a CD with singer Jackie Levin. Ian has amassed a number of literary awards around the world, and his popular Rebus crime series is translated into 22 languages. Ian's currently taking time out to join us from a book tour, and I'm grateful that he's here. Ian, welcome to Writers on the Beat. Hey, thank you very much. So out on tour right now for your newest John Rebus novel called In a House of Lies. And I actually tried to make it out to see you in Scottsdale yesterday, but my, my personal life intervened. It, it turns out we're, mm-hmm. we're trying, to, uh, trying to buy a house and moving. So, you know, that's a, a first world trouble. Yeah, real life, get, real life can get in the way sometimes. Yeah. I know that. <laughs> it does. Um, so I am just uh, recently cracked open in a house of lies, and I am absolutely in love with John Rebus, like as as a character. Like I I want I want him to be one of my mentors for good and bad reasons. Right? <laughs> um, can you give the the listeners a, a a bit about this story and about his character. Uh, yeah. Um... Well, he began life, as you've uh, hinted at, when I was I was young. I was a student. I was doing a PhD in Scottish literature. Um, and he just jumped into my head one night. I mean, I was writing. I was writing short stories. I'd tried writing literary novels. But suddenly here was this um, cop, this uh, guy with a, um, a difficult past. He'd um, been in the army. He'd served in Northern Ireland. He had been drummed out of the army for uh, misdemeanors. He eventually drifted into the police. Um, he was 40 years old. I was 24. Um, he was uh, married with a kid. I, I had no wife, no children. Uh, I, you know, mm-hmm. he'd left school at 15. Uh, I'd gone into to college and university. So we were very different characters. Where he mm-hmm. came from, I know not. He just jumped into my head. And the idea of him being a cop was mostly, it wasn't that I was a fan of uh, the procedural or of mystery novels, but I just thought if I want to write about um, my hometown, Edinburgh, if I want to write about society and the problems we have in the here and now in society, a cop is a pretty good way of doing it because he's got an all areas pass. It's like he can mm-hmm. be backstage at the concert. You know, he can be talking to the CEOs and the politicians one minute and the disenfranchised the next. Yeah, there's there's really nobody that's that's going to be beyond his reach or outside of his his sphere of influence in some capacity. That, well, that was certainly true up until he had to retire. Um, I've, because I decided to set the series in real time, a few books ago, he literally had to retire. He'd hit the age for um, retirement in the Scottish mm-hmm. police force. And then the, then I, I got a whole new set of challenges. My challenge then was, is he, is he still a useful way of looking at the world for me? Can I think of things to do with him? Can he inveigle his way into police inquiries? Um, but I enjoy that. I mean, if you've been writing about a character for mm-hmm. over 30 years and over 20 books, 
what keeps it fresh? What keeps you, the author, on your toes? If the character keeps changing before your very eyes or between books, if he's aged and his health isn't what it was and everything else and he's no longer a cop, that keeps that keeps it fresh for me. That keeps him an interesting character. Yeah. Now, is, uh, is that going to make Rebus your longest relationship? <laughs> um, not quite, because I'm still married to my wife, who I met at university, and I met her in 1981 when we were students together, and Rebus was invented in 1984-85. So I've known my wife slightly longer than John Rebus. But yeah, I mean, I've been living inside his head, or he's been living inside my head for quite a long time now. And it's interesting that you, your podcast is focused on um, the kind of links between uh, true life crime and investigation and uh, and how uh, novelists um, cope with that. Because, you know, and when I wrote the first Rebus novel, I had no police contacts at all. Uh, I remember wow. writing to the chief of police in Edinburgh and I said, look, um, by accident, I happen to be writing a crime novel. And... Uh, <laughs> can you help me? And I got a letter back saying, go to this police station, talk to these two detectives. I duly turned up looking like a tramp, middle of winter, and I was scruffy and had a long sort of secondhand coat on and everything. And mm -hmm. these very dapper police officers looked at me and, you know, what's your book about? And I gave them the, the bare bones of the plot of the first Rebus book, not knowing it was fairly close to a crime these guys were actually investigating in real life. So wow. I became a suspect. <laughs> an ongoing police inquiry and that put me off doing research for quite a while so for a long time I didn't do any research I didn't get close to the police and mm -hmm. then a cop who was a fan of my books in Edinburgh came up to get a book signed one time at a bookstore event and he said I like your book scene but you make quite a few procedural uh, uh, um, mistakes and I said okay tell me what they are and he became and still is a really good friend of mine and uh he would help me with all kinds that he would introduce me to lawyers and pathologists and he would sneak me into police stations for a look around and give me notes on murder cases that, you know, that were ongoing and stuff. So the books did start to get realistic. And when this book, this new book came out in the UK, which it did a couple of months ago, we decided that my tour of the UK to all the different cities would encompass um, events with professionals. Because the the audience of for crime fiction for mystery fiction are absolutely fascinated by the procedures and by the professionals, sure. so I'd be on stage in a city with a retired detective, a serving detective, a pathologist, a forensic anthropologist, a forensic archaeologist, a lawyer, you name it, and it was absolutely fascinating. Every night was different, and every night was fascinating. Oh, that's incredible. That that's a a, a discussion panel that that anybody who's a fan of crime fiction at all would absolutely love to go to that's I, I would love to go to that that's fascinating yeah i mean there was one guy who was in the audience and he came to get a book signed at the end and he said i didn't come for you i came for all the professionals he said i'm a <laughs> i'm a forensic i'm a forensic podiatrist i said what the heck is that wow he said well you know footprints what kind of shoes were they wearing you know oh, what's okay. their gait like you know how do their feet fall when you walk in soft ground or whatever um, all that kind of information you can actually get from footprints. Um, so there's yet another skill set that has arrived. This is one of the problems with being a detective fiction writer, as you'll know, mm -hmm. is that the parameters keep changing. Technology yes. keeps changing. And the audience are well aware of that, so the writer has to be aware of it too. So the stuff that goes on now that when I started this series, I could only have dreamed of. I mean, in the first one or two Rebus novels, there's barely a computer in the police station. People at home don't have, you know, in the UK didn't have computers in the early 80s. Um, there's no cell phones. 
um, forensics and DNA analysis are, are in their infancy. Um, so I have to keep up with that. So I do have to talk to the professionals to make sure the books are realistic. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Is the I'm from uh, kind of a it used to be a small town that's going through a pretty big boom cycle right now. But the uh, the police department where I'm from in 2019 doesn't have computers in their station at all now. And oh wow, they're, yeah, their cops are still handwriting their reports in ballpoint pen. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's surprising to me that you know when we run across stuff like that, that is it's such an anomaly for the modern era that if you put that in a fiction book, nobody would believe it. Well, they would in the UK, maybe. Um, <laughs> you know, people. You know, people who who watch TV crime, they'll mm -hmm. watch CSI or whatever CSI Miami. Mm -hmm. They think all these um, uh, all these professionals are working in shiny glass boxes yes. and have all the technology at their fingertips. And I always try and make it in my books. I make sure the reader knows. Look, there's a there's a budget. There's a there's an amount of money we have. And if we ask for for DNA analysis, if we ask for soil analysis. Um, that can take time and it can also cost. And we might not have the money in the budget to do that. Uh, I mean, every every murder case in the UK has a very tight budget um, that comes with it. And the stuff that will happen in 45 minutes on TV can take weeks or months to happen in real life. Yeah, that was one of the things that um, was probably my first stark realization about becoming a cop was the, the business of law enforcement is depressing. Um, <laughs> I'm a fairly fairly ideological guy um, in, in, in that sense. And, you know, I, I believe that we should be pulling out all the stops for every victim, every time, every crime, and that we should all run that way. But in reality, just like you said, if it's, you know, a, a small burglary or, um, you know, low dollar items, and there's no chance of mm -hmm. uh, very little chance of recovery of identifying a suspect, like, those things get pushed so far to the back of the line if it gets submitted to a lab that it, it will, it'll be months before it's tested. And in all probability, the department isn't going to have the funds to pay the, you know, $800,000, $1,500 for the forensic testing. And, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Here, uh, I mean, I've had, I mean, I've had that, I've, I've had that firsthand, you know, where I live in Edinburgh in Scotland, you know, uh, there's been, you know, it was one time I saw a, a guy in a mask and he was kind of emptying out a bag onto my driveway and I went out and I was mm -hmm. videoing the whole thing on my phone and, and what he'd done was he'd smashed the window of a car, got the bag from the car and was emptying it out to get the stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I sent, I got the cops around, it took them 45 minutes to arrive, mm -hmm. by which time, of course, he'd long gone. Um, I tried submitting the, the video evidence to them, but it bounced back saying, you know, our police station is not allowed to, to take um, video items in case they break the law. Uh, you know, I never heard any more oh. about it. And yeah. and the couple of times that I've been broken into, the police come around and they go, you know, here's a here's a crime number. You can just give that to your insurance company. Uh, do you have any CCTV on the premises? Nope. Well, that's the end of that then. You know, you get your money back from the insurance company and whoever did it just gets away with it. Yeah, no, readers don't like that, man. Readers no. don't like that. Readers no. like a sense of justice. They yes. like they like it if if the cop is, as you say, ideological and driven. Uh, and doesn't let the, let ordinary life get in the way. They're going to be focused on solving the crime. And if at the end of it there is a kind of certain justice, there's a, a certain sense of closure that exists pretty much only in crime fiction um, mm -hmm. and, and tends not to happen in the real world. Yeah, the uh, the one of the first um, commercial burglary cases I ever worked, um, we got 
I, I got uh, prints and DNA though. Where I worked, we did a lot of that ourselves and I uh, submitted it to the lab and um, it was four and a half years when it came oh. back. <laughs> but, oh, Lord. But, but we, but we had a match. So, you know, we got to go, got to go hook this guy on some really legit felonies, you know, years after he thought he got away with everything. And so there was a tremendous sense of satisfaction in it, but you know, um, you know, by then it's, you know, become an insurance claim, you know, it's, it yeah, is. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I mean, that thing about, you know, I, I like doing that. I do that a lot in my books, this sense that you may think you've got away with something, mm-hmm. but technology comes along or somebody suddenly blabs, they talk. And before you know it, um, the finger is being pointed at you. Um, my books often is a crime that happened a long time ago, maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 years, even longer ago than that. Mm-hmm. And of course, the person responsible thinks they've got away with it. Sure. Um, but because something happens, some information turns up or technology takes a turn, um, you've got a chance of solving the crime. And in the new book, um, it started with me reading a piece in a magazine, uh, a kind of a news magazine in the UK. And it was a case that they kept coming back to. It was an unsolved crime. And it was a private detective in London 30 years ago who'd been investigating alleged links. I've got to say alleged uh, links between senior police officers and organized crime. And he was Mm -hmm. found hacked to death in in a car park. Oh, my God. And this magazine keep coming back. They keep scratching at it and scratching it like an itch. They just won't let it. They won't let it go away, you know. Uh, and I, and I, you know, I thought, thought about it. I thought, I well, a, I don't really do much with private detectives in my books. It's mostly police detectives. B, there've been so many changes in the intervening time that now there's a chance to solve a crime that that did happen that long ago. And I thought, you know, Rebus, my detective, or now retired detective, he would have been a serving detective if you go back far enough. So maybe he was involved in the original case. And so the current case, they're looking into the crime, but they're also looking at potential malfeasance um, mm-hmm. and, and, and negligence during the original investigation. So I had, I had a perfect plot that allowed me to go back and look at the way crime used to be dealt with and used to be investigated and the shortcuts that used to be taken mm-hmm. and the way that the cops really can't do that anymore because of new technology, because mm-hmm. people, everybody has a phone and everybody's sort of monitoring phone calls and everybody's got, you know, access to CCTV and you can't get away with the stuff you used to get away with. Yeah. And I, to that end, like, I think I've, I've never met a, a cop personally who has any tolerance for police corruption, for bad cops, for, you know, somebody that's, that's stepping outside the bounds like that. And to me, I, I mentioned earlier a little bit ideological about that, but um, you know, police corruption itself is a terrible reality and any amount of it, yeah. no matter how small or minute has to be deemed intolerable and ferreted out whenever and wherever it's found. Now with Rebus's personality and, uh, his character as a notoriously, I think it's fair to say cynical cop, mm-hmm. uh, how, how is he dealing with, with that potential in this investigation? Well, he, I mean, the book is called In a House of Lies because the police headquarters in Edinburgh used to be called the Big House. And my Mm. feeling is that every cop, every professional who worked there was lying to a greater or lesser degree. They were covering something up. They were hiding something. They were taking a cup back. They were taking a, you know, some, they'd get their coffee for free in the cafe in the morning. Or if if certain people phoned them up, they would get a little, they'd get some help with something. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was, I mean, you know, when I started getting to know cops in the 80s, they were drinking at lunchtime in bars and they were covering up for each other and they were playing games and jokes on each other. 
you know, there was one guy who fell asleep in his patrol car. He would drive every day to a kind of sleepy spot and he would just fall mm. asleep. And, you know, people thought he was working, but he wasn't. And then he's one of his uh, mates, his co-workers, handcuffed him around the, the steering wheel of the car. So when an emergency call came in, he was trying to drive to the scene of the crime, handcuffed to his own car. Uh, and, you know, all this stuff used to go on uh, as a matter yeah. of course. And, of course, they got away with it because, uh, you know, well, and this is something that comes into the new book, because back then the powers that be could control the narrative much more carefully than they can now. Yes. So the, the police would have contacts in the media and there wasn't that much media. But what there was, the police could control the story. They could control what came out and how it came out. Mm-hmm. And that's much harder these days. They could control what information the public got. They could cover stuff up. It was a lot easier um, 20, 30 years ago than it is now. And I, so Rebus was part of that generation of cops in the UK who had learned from a previous generation who who just took this as kind of, this is, this is how we work. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the funny thing is, in some ways, Gavin, it did work. I mean, in some ways it did work. These... These guys, and they were mostly guys, it was, you know, it was, it was not a profession for women back in the day. They had their contacts, their snitches, their, their rats, they would meet them mm-hmm. in bars, they'd get drunk with them, they'd get information, they would twist their arm until they got the information they needed. Um, they were active, they were proactive, and they did get a lot of the bad guys and put them away. But at what cost? I mean, as you've, kind mm-hmm. of, as you've alluded to, at what cost to themselves? And at what cost to the idea, the ideals of justice? Yes. Um, there was a TV show in the UK, and I think it was even shown in the States uh, just a couple of years ago called uh, Life on Mars. And it was about a cop in the present day who's touchy-feely, liberal, you know, politically correct, all the rest of it, who is in a car accident and goes back in time and wakes up in the 1970s. Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. seeing uh, the ad for that, yeah. Yeah. And and you're supposed to side with him. You're supposed to have sympathy and empathy for him because he's suddenly in with these cops who are breaking all the rules. But the public who watched that show were completely seduced by the characters from the 70s who would bend the rules, break the rules, beat up people in custody, bottle of whiskey in the bottom drawer of the filing cabinet, all that stuff that used to happen because they got results and people felt, well, we kind of like that. We like the fact that they're rough and ready and they bend the rules, but they get the job done. And that's the background Rebus comes from. And my job as an, as, as an author is to A, make him as realistic as possible and B, to have a conversation with him about that. And I use my younger cops like Siobhan Clark. Mm-hmm. She's much more liberal. She's college educated to be my modern, spokesperson, right? yeah, and to have a conversation with Rebus about, look, you know, you, you bent a lot of rules back then and, and you shouldn't have, and you don't make my job any easier because of who you are and what you did. Yeah, I was I just had a, another conversation earlier today about readers and their tolerance or desire for rough justice, that mm-hmm. it's fantastic fiction, but it makes horrible headlines. And somehow... <laughs> yeah. We, we have this intrinsic desire that we want, we want to see the bad thing happen to the bad guy who did all the, all the things to all the people. But, you know, in, when it comes time in reality today, you know, we want the knight in shining armor who's always going to do the mm-hmm. right thing, who's morally above the fray and can walk through those gutters without getting stained by them. 
Yeah, it's the um, it's Raymond Chandler's Tarnished Knight, mm -hmm. who yes. walks down these mean streets um, without himself being mean. I mean, I'm kind of you know misquoting there, but yeah, <laughs> I mean that's that's kind of where Rebus is coming from. It's that notion of the the Clint Eastwood figure who comes into a lawless town and mm -hmm. brings order to it for a short time, or the the knight who will ride into the forest and cap um, uh, protect the damsel in distress from the dragons. I mean, that's what our that, that's what our detectives are doing in fiction a lot of the time, and we're bringing order. We're, we're sort of, you know, showing you chaos and then bringing some order at the end from the chaos. I mean, but I, I always I had this notion as a writer that it wasn't always cut and dried. In the real world, it's very seldom cut and dried. And I remember one early Rebus novel. I think it was Let It Bleed, and it had a very open ending. You weren't exactly sure if justice had been done. Rebus had some information that could put away the bad guys, but the bad guys were in a position of power. Would he actually go through with it, and would he get away with putting them away, putting them in jail? Um, the American, my American editor said, "Oh, because it was an open ending." They said, "Oh mm -hmm. no, we need we need an extra chapter at the end for the American audience to explain that Rebus does get justice, um, that the bad guys do go away." And it was an interesting difference then between the audience in the U.S. and the audience in the U.K. One really wanting that closure that you can only get from fiction; you don't always get from real life. Yep. Um, and the other audience being a little bit more accepting of, of openness and the fact that the good guys don't always win. Yeah, a little bit more reality. Yeah, I think that one of the one of the tough things is you know trying to balance as a writer your your need for authenticity and the reader's desires, right? Whether it's you know mm -hmm. strategy and tactics or investigative capabilities or technology or or rough justice that happens in in fiction but doesn't happen anymore or is is so limited and anomalous that it it's almost non-existent and where in your writing do you do you try to strike that balance or is that like an ongoing conversation with the characters with yourself how does how does that work for you well, I mean, I think I get to have it both ways um, because Rebus is old school. He's a he's a dinosaur. He's the last of his kind. No, no cop could get away with doing the stuff that he does or did. Mm -hmm. He's retired, so he no longer has to obey the rules. He doesn't have to. He doesn't. He's not a cop anymore. So, he, in some ways, that's difficult because he's not got a badge, so he can't go into places right. and say, "I'm a cop. You've got to talk to me." <laughs> Yeah. But in other ways, he doesn't have to obey any of the rules, the old rules and standards. Um, whereas mm -hmm. Siobhan Clark and Malcolm Fox, my actual detectives, are much more circumspect about how they carry out an investigation. Uh, and in this book specifically, without giving away too much, towards the end, Reba says to, these, to, the, to the working detectives, look, I can get you the result you want, but you've got to get me in the room. You mm -hmm. put me in the room and you allow me to bend the rules a bit, I can get your result. And they've got to make that decision as to whether they allow him um, to, to bend the rules, uh, or whether they go by absolutely by the book, and uh, I try and convince the reader that could happen. Could it happen in the real world? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I always say my books are about the potential for things to happen. They're not things that have happened, or they're things that might happen, or they could happen this way. Um, and but as you've as you've said, you know, people like a cop who's driven, who's focused, who doesn't let their personal life get in the way. You know, in in the real world, no. Uh, detective is there at the beginning of an inquiry where a body's found and there at the end when the culprit is revealed it can take years you might mm -hmm. go off and do other stuff you might be you know you might be taken off the case etc etc um, so what I'm doing is I'm saying this is the ideal of how things could be and meantime there's a lot of stuff happening just off screen just off camera as it were 
um, that we're not interested in. So all the door-to-door -door investigations that go nowhere, all the collating of information, the investigations of the archives, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody somewhere else just off the page is doing that, but let's focus on these two or three central detectives mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and how they go about the case as a, as a, a team. And Rebus was never a team player. He was always, mm -hmm. from the get-go, like a, like a private detective within the police force, going out on his own, not working well as part of a team, want to go off on his own tangent, do his own thing, and come back with a result. And if you're his boss, you either like it or you lump it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, God forbid it should ever happen, but if it did, would you want Rebus or one of the other detectives to investigate your murder? Oh, I'd want Rebus, man. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you want the I results? Mean, Rebus, well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 it's a difficult one because I drink in the same bar as him. The, the bar he drinks in in Edinburgh is a real bar. I've been drinking there since I was a student. And people often come in there, fans come in from all over the world looking for him. They're not looking for me. They're looking for him. Sure. And of course, he doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. And, and I think I'm a real letdown because I'm not like him. I'm not complex and damaged and dangerous. I've not always got a ready one-liner for them and all the rest of it. I'm fairly quiet and shy and liberal in my thinking and everything else. But if you're looking for someone to investigate a crime, he is the guy you want because he is completely focused and driven. He's got no personal life per se. If you give him a bone to chew on, he's going to keep gnawing away at it. He's not going to let it go. Um, so I'd want someone like Rebus. But he would then, he now knows he needs help. He now knows that he needs um, some, some friends and colleagues around him who can use the internet, who can use DNA analysis, who can use the tools that are now available. Because um, he works by instinct uh, and by very old ways, you know. Mm -hmm. In fact, in the last few books, I've had a lot of fun by taking him to a bar to look for an old contact of his. And then the bar's not there anymore. It's now a coffee shop or a wine bar. <laughs> and the old guys who used to get information from are all dead. Yes. You know, the world has changed so much that he really doesn't understand it anymore. Um, but yeah, if I was getting invested, if my murder, God forbid, yeah. has been investigated, I'd want a Rebus or a Harry Bosch to do it. You know, so I, in, in my notes uh, before we talked, I specifically wanted to, to bring up Harry Bosch because um, Rebus reminds me very much of, uh, of him in, in, in a lot of ways, a lot of personality and, and mm -hmm. even a lot of their career path. Um, yeah, it's, extraordinary. it's an extraordinary coincidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, Michael and I started around the same time. Um, we gave our characters fairly ridiculous names. I mean, Hieronymus Bosch is a famous painter. Yes. Rebus means picture puzzle. There's no, well, actually, there are some real Rebuses, but I didn't know that when I started writing about them. Um, they've both got army backgrounds. Uh, Harry Bosch was Vietnam. Rebus served in the Army Parachute Regiment in Ireland at the height of the troubles with the, with the um, paramilitaries and stuff and terrorists. Um, they have retired and come back into the fold. Um, and yet, you know, we'd never discussed this. I mean, I see, I see Michael maybe once a year, if I'm lucky, at uh, some crime fiction convention mm -hmm. or whatever, or when he's on tour. Um, and we've never discussed the fact that our guys are so similar in so many ways in the way that, as you say, the arc of their story has gone. Um, but, I, but I do think there are similarities between them. And I do think he's, a, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm never, I never feel insulted when people say they think I'm a bit like uh, Michael Connolly because he's such a great writer and such a great exponent of the art of writing um but you know he's been a, a crime journalist i've never been i was a music journalist um which is why rebus has, uh, likes his music um but i don't have any of that going for me i don't have the skill set that, that mike's got yeah and on that note um i recently learned that 
excuse me, that you have a, a band, uh, Best Picture. And mm -hmm. I think listeners, um, readers, <laughs> the, the public, um, are often surprised when artists they know from one media or format cross over into something else. In my experience, most creatives aren't really one-trick ponies. Um, what does your ability to express creativity in, in different media mean to you as an artist? Well, you know, I, I mean, you're, I mean, you're right. There are lots of people who can do more than one thing, but I really can. I mean, I'm I'm the vocalist in a band. Singer would be putting it far too strongly. Um, <laughs> I, I was in a I was in a punk band when I was 19, and I thought that I'd got it out of my system. And then, like, just a couple of years ago, so when I was like 56, a couple of journalist friends of mine said, "Hey, we get we get together and jam. Do you want to come along and do some vocals?" And that became Best Picture. So it's all guys in their 50s who should know better, who've all got day jobs, but we just like to get together and. Uh, uh, what does it bring? Well, you know, I mean, writing is a fairly solid, well, it's absolutely a solitary experience. It can be quite a lonely experience. Um, I like it, but it's nice to get together and work collegiately. It's, it's nice to be in a gang and just sit there and, and, and noodle ideas and come up with ideas. And I do all the lyrics for the band. So we actually now have a song. I've written the lyrics for a song called In a House of Lies. It doesn't have any similarities with the plot of the book. I just thought it'd be quite funny to actually have a song called mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, it's fun. I mean, it's fun to write lyrics. I mean, lyric writing slash lyric poetry. It's a very different mindset from writing a novel. Right? Novelists are incredibly lazy. We've got as many words as we need, as many yes. characters as we need, yeah. as many scenes as we need. The book can be 300 pages, 400, 500, 600, 700. As a as a, a, a lyricist, as a poet, you've only got a, you've only got a very tight frame that you can mm -hmm. work in. And I know this as well from having done a couple of stage plays uh, recently. And you know, you do a stage play and, and the producer says, you've got 15 characters, we can only afford five. You know, we can li literally only afford to pay five actors. So we need, to, we need to cut this down. We can't have all these scene changes, it's impossible to do on a stage and et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these restrictions when you get into these other formats, but it's great. In a way, it's really, it's a release because you've got to think in a very different way. You've got to think in a different way of how do I get this information across in the best possible way? And I do enjoy it. And I like hanging out with musicians and I like hanging out with that. So, I mean, you're right that all, I mean, almost every writer I know would rather be a musician. Almost every musician <laughs> I know would rather be an actor. Every actor I know yes. wants to be a painter. Every painter yeah. I know wants to be a poet. Every poet I know what, yeah, but you know, you go, what? Nobody's happy. Nobody's happy doing what they're doing. Um, and, you know, we all feel we'd rather be doing something else. That's, that's an incredible observation. I hadn't realized that. But as, as, you, as you're saying that, every, almost everybody that you talk to or, or see interviewed is like, you know, I, I act, but I came to Hollywood because I wanted to, you know, be the lead singer of a rock band. You know? <laughs> yeah, or yeah. be a director or something. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, well, out of, uh, out, of, out of respect for your time and the, the, what you've already donated to us on, on uh, taking this out to come off your book tour and talk to us, uh, a couple last questions, and um, I'll let you get back with your evening, sir. Mm -hmm. What would you like readers to most take away from your writing? Oh, Lord. Um, I mean, I started writing these books as a student to try and make sense of Edinburgh, to try and make sense of the world around me. Writing is something I've always done since I was a kid, to try and make sense of the world to shape the world, um, to, it's cathartic, it's, it's therapeutic for me to get all this stuff down on paper. I'd like people to take away a sense of what Scotland was like in late 20th, early 21st centuries, take away a sense of the character of Rebus as a very fully rounded individual that you would like to have known in real life, um, to have enjoyed a roller coaster ride of a plot, and to come away with the kind of satisfaction of a story well told. Well, I think all that's been 
pretty well accomplished. Uh, where can listeners and readers connect with you and your works, Ian? Uh, well, hopefully in bookstores. Um, I mean, hopefully bookstores and libraries would be the first place to connect because you don't connect with me, you connect with my books. Is, is hopefully the first connection. But I don't do much in social media. But I'm a bit of a luddite, you know. I, um, uh, I don't do Facebook at all, but I do do Twitter. So people can always get me on Twitter, where my handle is Beef High, which was my old high school in Fife. Um, but if you put it in Ian Rankin, you'll find me anyway. And I'm pretty addicted to Twitter, so you'll always find me there. Um, and if you don't find me on Twitter, it means I'm writing. Perfect. Perfect. We'll look forward to the, the, the next one and getting uh, in a house of lies finished. Uh, thanks to my guest, international bestseller Ian Rankin, for joining me today. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a proud part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there. Thank you.